Hello everyone, welcome back to It's a Wonderful Podcast, the main show, episode 186. Nolan, this was a movie you chose because of a particular interest in law that you seem to have developed. Care to elaborate? <laughs> the most uni-student way possible. I have to study this movie from my class this week. It happens to be from the time period that we cover. I've got a lot of assignments and deadlines this week. I'm killing two birds with one stone. Which is a fair point, but also it gave you an excuse to watch this wonderful movie. Which I'm assuming you've probably seen like 50 times. Well, I wouldn't go as far as 50 times. You know when people, I question when people say they've seen movies 50 times, Nolan. I don't think I've seen Harry Potter 50 times, and that's me. I've definitely seen Jaws over 50 times and The Social Network over 50 times. But that's a lot, though. That's an awful lot. This will give you a little insight into what I was like in high school. I used to watch The Social Network every night before school started because it would inspire me to go into school and be successful. Wow. And then I discovered capitalism is a disease and I stopped doing that. My eyes have been opened up to a whole new side of you, Nolan, that I didn't know existed. I've been trying to bury that side for 10 years, so there's a reason. You're low-key admiration of Mark Zuckerberg. Oh, trust me, any admiration I had for that guy is gone. We all thought Jesse Eisenberg was overacting as Lex Luthor. Turns out he was underselling billionaires. It's a fair point. It's a very fair point. But I do like the fact that your university course is I'm I'm going to use the word making but I really think it's a treat treating you into having to watch this movie because I think it's a delightful movie and a case that I don't necessarily see a great deal these days but that also maybe because i'm not paying attention to certain kinds of movies perhaps in more recent years but the kind of this is the kind of light-hearted movie that deals with pretty serious situations in a very kind of i say serious message but i certainly don't mean you know heavy or anything like that it just it makes a very direct point about um feminism and about gender equality and it just but it it does it surrounded by a domestic rom-com about a married couple of lawyers it's the balance of it i think is what i'm trying to get at is perfect And it's the kind of, you you don't get, or at least I don't see, this level of rom-com as it was, because that's what this movie is, these days. Because rom-coms tend to be, when they are more dramatic, they are more kind of personally dramatic not necessarily big picture message dramatic i mean can you think of very many big picture message rom-coms because this is Uh, one of them uh recently um maybe crazy rich asians or the big sick or something like that actually probably not even the big sick because that's just a funny rom-com well yeah but i mean even something like that it it's drama is centered around a character situation, not a topic that the movie's trying to discuss. I mean, I suppose it is, but it, it's not. It's a unique thing. I think that's what I'm trying to say, and I just really appreciate this movie for that. The movie we're talking about, of course, is George Cukor's Adam's Rip from 1949. 
starring everyone's favourite power couple that never quite was, but definitely was. But was it? But yes, it was. Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn. We talked a lot in my lecture about uh, how the kind of actress that she was sort of gave the viewer an impression of like how to see her as. So in this movie, she's a very against the man feminist kind of actress and you wonder if that her being that in real life also affects how you see her in this movie is that the same case for you well absolutely i mean that's precisely what she was in in real life she was such a this is this is i think what i love so much about adam's rib is it seems such a true to life depiction of what I imagine Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn's actual relationship was like. Because as we all know, Nolan, they spent, they had a decades-long relationship that was never anything more than lovers. Because it couldn't be because of scandal and what have you and what have you. But the fact of the matter was there. This is, Adam's Rib is exactly how I picture their relationship as just a very playful but ultimately strong-willed back and forth between two very, very smart people who stand up for what they believe in but ultimately know that their affection for each other is the most important thing. Isn't that exactly what this movie is? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. It's uh, it's one of those things where I feel like the case, it reveals a lot about their relationship more so than it does what happened with the case itself. Like Doris, yeah. the woman who shoots her husband. And in fact, I mentioned this in my lecture. I feel the movie would have been better if we never saw her do that because then you would only have to go on like story accounts of what happened and therefore the message of double standards it might have rang true a little bit because I know there's a lot of people who will watch this thinking yeah I straight up just saw her walk into a room and shoot her husband she's a psychopath but yeah. I don't know maybe that's uh maybe that's like a 40s thing I'm not sure but I feel that scene would have been best cut out and then the message would have rung true a little bit even though I agree with the central message that there are double standards I've never thought about it like that, actually. It, it does make sense, now that you say it. Why do we actually see the crime taking place? It doesn't matter to the actual movie. Because basically, what this, what, what Adam's Rib is about, if one would like to know, is Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn are a married couple. They're both lawyers. They take a case of a wife shooting uh, a husband and let's call it what it is nolan the husband is a terrible person <laughs> he's awful i forget who he's played by now um but he is truly a an awful kind of i don't know i don't know what the right word is to use i think scumbag might be a little bit too harsh but weasel <laughs> is probably a more appropriate term, I, 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 I would say. I will offer another description. Uh, probably Father James Corden. Oh, I mean, and Tom Ewell is the guy's name, by the way. I was getting caught up on what his name was. Um, that's Tom Ewell, if you, are a, if you are a nice man, then fair play to you. You're a good character actor. However, if you are anything like your character in this movie, I hope that your grave is filled with the most uncomfortable insects and bones imaginable poking you in places that you didn't know you had. That's how I felt about this character. He's just very unpleasant to his, to his wife, to the point where you, I feel, and I think we're supposed to feel, genuine sympathy for Judy Holiday playing Doris, the, the woman on trial. Judy Holiday in this movie is great, by the way. I mean, you also read things around this movie, and it seems to be the case that, well, 
Judy Holiday at this point was starring in the Broadway production of Born Yesterday, uh, which as a movie she starred in that came out in 1950 that me and Janine actually covered on this show quite a while ago now. And Judy Holiday is great. It seems to be that Judy Holiday would not have gotten the film role of her own Broadway role of, in Born Yesterday had it not been for this movie and basically Catherine Hepburn acting as her hype woman <laughs> in yeah, publicity. Yeah. I can definitely see that. Like she would be maybe the small character actor at that time, and then starring yeah. in a movie with Catherine Hepburn that kind of ups her up a bit. It's very, it's very much like that. I don't think. Well, I know Judy Holiday was very inexperienced in movies at this point, and I think it speaks to how just delightful of a person. Catherine Hepburn always seemed to be and how, again, how strong she believed in certain things and how far she would go to see what she believed in come to fruition, i.e. in this movie she believed in the acting quality of Judy Holiday, and wouldn't stop until she saw her gain the success she feels she deserved, which is ultimately what happened, and just again is another reason I think that just speaks to the respect we must give to Catherine Hepburn. I say all this sitting in front of a large picture of Catherine Hepburn that I do indeed worship. So <laughs> that says all it needs to, I think. I am going to move into a stage. Where we're going to get a little bit fun. Good. Morgan, you are now an honorary class member of Law, Film, and Popular Culture. It's a wonderful podcast edition. Okay, then. Right, so what we are going to do is I'm going to get the slides up where we were talking about this movie and use that as some points for consideration because there's quite an interesting uh, element here. So the first question we were asked is, does the genre of the film influence the way that you view gender in the law? For example, comparing the comedy drama of this movie to an outright comedy such as Legally Blonde. Look, I... <laughs> You're being graded on your answer. I'm not being graded. I don't know this much about the law. I, You might view this, uh, Nolan, I view this movie as a like i've said before like i said a, a light-hearted message movie with filled with actors that i very much admire in a an oscar-winning script it has to be said as well an, or an oscar-nominated script less so than a courtroom drama you say what in terms of what do you mean well since i'm looking at this from the perspective of a law student we don't really like you don't have to worry about saying stuff like oh i have to pretend i know about the law i don't know fuck all about how the law works but i understand ways that uh, movies can present law in a sort of simplified fashion and i think this movie is one of them in which you know you compare it to something like legally blonde which also deals with uh gender stereotypes in the law you know no one thinks reese witherspoon's character in that movie could do a law case but it's actually her femininity that ends up winning her the case in the end i think it's a similar case in here in fact i would argue this movie is probably a big influence on something like legally blonde well yeah i think that's fair in in terms of how the how movies would view femininity in 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 the courtroom shall we say but what this movie fo wants to focus on and what it does focus on more than simply it, it's different from from something like legally blonde in the sense that legally blonde may focus on reese witherspoon's femininity 
winning or, or being what allows her to win the day, as it were. This movie doesn't do that. It simply portrays kind of exact equality, which is, and some elements of gender fluidity, I suppose, some elements of see this person as something else, and does your judgment of this person change um, now because you have viewed them in a different light? Again, this boils down to Catherine Hepburn being a particularly unfeminine, quote-unquote, unfeminine woman of the golden age of, of Hollywood. Catherine Hepburn doesn't wear... Catherine Hepburn wears pants, literally. Which she is the big the thing. She wears the pants. She does. She always wears trousers. Doesn't wear dresses. Doesn't look... You know, doesn't act as uh, the graceful princess type. She's not interested in doing that. She's interested in being whatever the hell she wants to be, which is her own free-thinking, free-spirited woman, mm -hmm. which is what she is like in this movie as well. And it's the argument she puts forth in this movie, which is to say that why do we treat women or why do we judge women in specifically marriages that we're talking about in this movie? Why do we judge marriages where the woman is allowed to suffer more than the man simply because of this archaic traditional view of patriarchy that's what this movie is what if that was flipped that's Catherine Hepburn's whole argument in this movie what if that was flipped you'll notice that Spencer Tracy's argument in this movie isn't the opposite of that Spencer Tracy doesn't want this case Spencer Tracy's terrified of having to take this case because he knows what his wife is going to do. And he kind of he loves her for that. He's a little bit annoyed, sure, at times. There's sometimes in this movie where there's a little bit of arguing going on. For example, slightly aggressive massages, Nolan. Mm-hmm. And, and another point that I can get on with that. Well, with the massages. Well, the mass well, yeah, that the passive aggressiveness there is interesting, but the part that stood out to me the most was Are you Morgan, are you a fan of licorice? No. I'm not I'm really not a fan of licorice, and I know it's a big whole thing at the end of the movie, and I love the end of the movie, I do. But I really yeah. can't stand licorice. It's horrible. I I I almost wish I would almost prefer that he was using an actual gun. Than tasting licorice. <laughs> I was, uh, I will, I will admit, and sneak preview for potentially the end of the show. I was going to ask you to see us out by quoting the last line of the movie today, Nolan. But maybe that is something that I shouldn't be doing, having learned that you also think licorice is vomit-inducing. It is. I, I only like the flavor of aniseed in something like fennel or in a nice salad or something like that. In a sweet, it does not belong. Get rid of it. <laughs> it's a lot of licorice he puts into his mouth as well. That, I mean, it's the full thing. Uh, he just and I mean, munches he, on it. Even beforehand, the whole thing with the neighbor, who is definitely gay, by the way. I mean, I definitely got gay vibes coming off this guy. But that jealousy that they have of like the guy kind of being envious of the 
like feminine guy who gets more where Catherine Hepburn's coming from more than him. Like I enjoy those little ticks in Spencer Tracy's face whenever he's around. Yeah. He kind of he's seething under the surface, Spencer Tracy a lot in this movie. Because he's kind of he's realizing that and this is this is what I feel Spencer Tracy does so well is that it could be very very easy to cast Spencer Tracy as not to cast him physically as in you are cast in this movie but I mean to portray Spencer Tracy in this movie as the, as the villain really he's the one who is standing up for the horrible husband in the court of law He's the one who is opposed to these progressive ideas that the movie he's, wants to promote. He's, he's a traditionalist one... versus the progressive. That's kind of yeah. the whole thing that goes for it. Like, And when it comes to the law, I've always been of the progressive kind because laws are made to be changed. So I've never understood like proper traditionalist lawyers. They seem like guys with too much power and too much of an ego. And I do like that you see that in Spencer Tracy and he plays that antagonistic bit well, but there's also like sort of a kind heart underneath there that seems afraid to come out. Exactly. Exactly. And you get so much of that in his very, very loving scenes with Catherine Hepburn. Very playful relationship. They've got you know, they both call each other Pinky as a nickname. Just remember, though, no one. It's Y for Spencer Tracy and I for Catherine Hepburn. That's very important information. That's the same name Pinky. as my cat. Well, that's the nickname for each other. I like, and I love that. I love that they both, you know, that they both give each other essentially the same nickname. And. He bring you know he he brings unexpected gifts to her. He's a very loving, sweet person. He's a very loving, sweet husband. He also does some soul searching. I think a little bit in this movie, not necessarily massively deep, but in terms of his beliefs, like you said potentially his more traditionalist beliefs. But then again, could he possibly have been married to Amanda Bonner, Catherine Hepburn in this movie? Had he been entirely traditional? No, because he wouldn't have liked the kind of woman Amanda is. No, he, he definitely been. wouldn't have. So there's that under there as well. So he's going through a little bit of an internal thing in in Adam's room, which I like, and he plays so well. Spencer Tracy's very good at playing men who seem straight-talking, direct, and almost weirdly rough on the outside. But unbelievably kind-hearted on the like he doesn't go well in Father of the Bride as well, which I think is another movie that me and Janine have actually talked about on this show. But he's very stern and he's very gruff and he's a little bit annoyed all the time. But ultimately, his most extreme emotion as it were through almost extreme characteristic in that movie is his kind heart and that comes across in this as well he's jealous even at times like you've said with the neighbor kip who writes a nice song about amanda which will immediately get stuck in your head i mean admittedly i've been singing it all day Farewell, Amanda. It's so catchy. You can see why it's such a big radio hit, apparently. Is that what socialising was like back then? 
maybe if you're a fancy lawyer, Noel, and I think he said, well, I think that's what socialising is like now to a point if you're a fancy wealthy lawyer, you know. I can't imagine getting dressed up in a suit to go hang out with my friends. Oh, well, you're maybe not going to the right kind of places. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, the places I go to, you probably wouldn't want to dress up in a suit. Got a nice blazer on. I mean... I, I look, bet you've got a collection of blazers. Of course I do. Look, the the kind of... The dinner party atmosphere, I suppose, which are the social events in Adam's room, aren't necessarily your scene, are they? I would go to a dinner party wearing a denim jacket. I don't give a fuck. You'd probably go to a dinner party wearing a pair of shorts. No, no, I hate shorts. Have you ever tried wearing shorts in Scotland? You see a guy wearing shorts in Scotland, that man is insane. It's like seeing a guy with a mustache in Scotland. He is a nutcase. Do men not have mustaches in Scotland? No, they do, but if you see a guy with just a singular mustache, no uh, stubble or facial hair to go around it, just the mustache, that guy's nuts. It depends what kind of mustache it is, surely. What if it's a a lovely, big, bushy moustache? I can't even say the word bushy moustache without my mouth breaking. Uh, I I had a personal trainer who had a big uh, moustache like that, and he was a nutter. You just why do you have an agenda against mustaches? You are re, you do realize who you're talking to. Well, this guy came up to me and he was like, "Excuse me. I see from your food diary that last night for dinner you ate a bag of chocolate money." <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know you could get sacked from a personal trainer. I am impressed by this gentleman's accent. Actually, I mean, that is quite possibly the most Scottish accent I've ever heard come out of someone's mouth. He looked like the Monopoly man. The only way that could have been more Scottish would be if he was saying absurdly stereotypical things. Like, okay there, laddie, and things like that. I've lived here for the past five years. I've never seen anyone say laddie. Well, it's very stereotypical. I've been yes. to France. I've never seen anyone wearing a stripy jumper, but it's just stereotypical, isn't it? Well, that, that, that was just you. You were riding a bicycle with a baguette and a stripy jumper. And a very moustache. Quite opposite. Quite opposite to the Scottish personal trainer's moustache. Anyway, what are we talking about, Scottish personal trainers? We're not interested in those. Spencer Tracy could have used a Scottish personal trainer. Mr. Tracy, I see from the relationship with your wife that you are a traditionalist bastard. Well, that's a bit unfair on Spencer Tracy. That's a bit unfair on Spencer Tracy, I think. I do like how serious the movie does play his insecurity and his jealousy, though. It makes it feel like it's actually got genuine stakes, which is another layer of this movie to me where it's a light-hearted movie, but it feels like everything that happens really matters and really has a a real point and purpose to it. And again, commend, you know, commendations, I suppose is the right word. To the writers, I know it was Ruth Gordon who who wrote the script with somebody else who I now forget the name of and can't look it up. But I know they were nominated for an Oscar. And I just appreciate that because you don't get many. It seems like you maybe used to in this era, but you don't hear many. Oscar-nominated rom-com scripts anymore. No, I think I think the last one was The Big Sick. I think it probably was, and that was a, few, a good few years ago now. And that's a great movie, sure it is. But, again, even that's a, a heavier movie than this, isn't it? 
But yeah, yeah. Anyway, the 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 trial itself, Nolan. Do you, are you a fan of the trial itself in this movie? Yes. If anything, it's a great showcase for Catherine Hepburn's acting ability. And the actual results of the trial, I mean, I knew it was going to go this way anyway. The move, the themes of this movie would not work if uh, Doris ends up getting sent to jail. So she does not get acquitted. And that's another thing that we talk about in law, film, and popular culture is that often when you're portraying lawyers in a courtroom in a movie, yes, you have to know how law works, but remember, you're also writing a film that has dramatic elements and thematic stuff. And thus, you kind of get this... This was really interesting. My lecturer described it as the CSI effect. So you know how people will watch episodes of CSI and they'll think that's what forensics is like? Yes. It's a similar thing with lawyers. You see people like Gordon Gecko and you know Tom Cruise and a few good men, or even in a more similar case like uh, The Judge or The Dark Knight or To Kill a Mockingbird, and you'll assume that's what law is. But yeah. not nah, they have to they have to simplify things in a way for the audience because at the end of the day they're telling a story. They're not documenting a case. It'd be way too. It'd be way too complex. I do. I mean, that's the case with everything, isn't it? I mean, don't don't get into a profession because you've seen it in a movie or a TV show because it's going to be much harder and much more complex than that than said movie or TV show made it out to be. Run away if you see a guy example. who thought, I'm going to become a district attorney because I loved The Dark Knight. Oh God! No! 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 no. It is likely he half, is going to person. he is going to moonlight as a vigilante executing people from the flip of a coin. That's exactly what he's going to do if we're going off the dark night, isn't it? Although, does he or does he not have to have half of his face blown off first? Not blown off, acided off. I think in the dark night it was just burnt off, but yeah, I would assume so. I think that's just part of the makeup. Oh, that's right. Like, it was burnt off in the dark night. Hey, it's been a long time since I've seen that movie. <laughs> uh, it has, and I wonder why, because the director's a moron. <laughs> he is. Him and Denis Villeneuve should just get together and jerk each other off to each other. I, was go- I wasn't going to be so blatant about it, but you know what I mean. You know me yeah. too well. Uh, now, do you feel this film? I'm I'm grading you again on this. Do you feel it accurately shows the double standards with gender and the law? Like, say, for example, let's um, like that scene where they say, "Now look at the husband and imagine it's a woman," or "Look at Doris and imagine it's a man." Did your mind change? I would just first like to point out that the. The costuming in that scene is is excellent. They actually give Judy Holiday a little bit of a mustache. When is they... Judy Holiday being inducted into the Mustache Hall of Fame, oh, I or I suppose know. the the trans boy version of Judy Holiday being inducted into the Mustache Hall of Fame? I, re- I mean, is 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 it appropriate to refer to an inductee as, uh, in the Mustache Hall of Fame as trans boy Judy Holiday? Um, I mean, I'm non-binary, I, so I give you permission. I feel it should just be Judy Holiday. We've had, f- we've had false... M- in fact, the last inductee, which was last week into the Mustache Hall of Fame, was someone wearing a false moustache. So, why not? Judy Holiday, you're going in. As only the second ever woman in the Mustache Hall of Fame. Nolan, do you know who the first woman ever inducted into the Mustache Hall of Fame on It's a Wonderful Podcast was? Susan Boyle. No, it was a false moustache, and it was, in fact, Catherine Hepburn. So there you go. That actually fits with what I know about Catherine Hepburn as an actress. I could see her just rocking that. Yeah, she wore a false moustache in Little Women. And she was in Little Women. Of course, she seems like the kind of person who would be in Little Women. I'm, I'm presuming as the main character. 
Yeah, uh, yeah, she was Joe. Yeah, figured. It's great, Little Women, nineteen thirty-four. It's great. There's so many adaptations of Little Women. I don't know where to start. There are. Um, go nineteen ninety. Do them all. Do them all. Nineteen thirty-four. I think there's an ep- there's an episode of it. It's a wonderful podcast, Nolan. Little Women retrospective. It was right around the time that the Greta Gerwig, Saoirse Ronan one was out, and we did. We did 1934 with Catherine Hepburn. We did 94 with Renona Ryder. And we did the newest one in a whole mm. retrospective. It was fun. But yeah, Judy Holiday, mustache hall of fame. Well done, Judy. We love now, you. let's yeah. get a little emotional, shall we? Emotional? I thought because... we were talking about gender. I haven't finished talking about gender yet. Well, that it, was my it, it, preamble. It, it, it plays into it. Uh, we'll go on to your thoughts about gender, and then we'll get into the uh, emotional bit. Okay, that was that was just my preamble. I also really appreciated the fact that uh, Tom Ewell, who plays the husband, who I've actually forgot the name of as well now, Walter is his name. Walter Warren. Warren. His name. They both Warren. sound like names of dickheads, to be honest. So I'll take either of them. He'll, we'll call him Walter Warrington the Third. He looks like the worst drag act ever <laughs> in that scene when he when it fades to him wearing a dress and a wig. Yeah, I tried to watch RuPaul the other day, but it was a bit of a drag. No oh dear. Oh, what a <laughs> terrible joke! Ru- no, RuPaul, for instance, and RuPaul's gang of people are wonderful drag performers. Not Tom Ewell wearing a wig and a dress. Terrible. <laughs> Shocking. Shockingly <laughs> unconvincing. It was like the worst local pantomime <laughs> nonsense in the world. It's terrible. That's what he looks like. But Judy Holiday, straight into the Mustache Hall of Fame for clean cut masculine femininity that's a weird word but i do think this movie should depicts double standards in gender in society very well not just in the courtroom because admittedly like i said i know very little about the courtroom and the law and how the law may or may not have treat women differently to men in the past but I know what the world I know how differently the world treats men and women and I certainly know how differently the world treated men and women 60 years ago you know 70 years ago when this when is this 1949 70 years ago 72 years ago when this movie came out it's a hell of a lot different then and it's still iffy now it's a hell of a lot worse then which is why the message is of this movie and it's fighting for the cultural norm to be equal thinking in terms of gender and the ability to treat everybody as you know, to not to not give unnecessarily biased disadvantage to people based on something out of their control, something as simple as gender, or potentially as complex as gender. As we all know, it can be a wild world of letters, I suppose, can't it? But it shows it very well. Which shows it very intelligently. And as we've said, and I think it's a big reason I actually really like this movie, and the movie for me is effortlessly watchable, is that it's also very progressive about it. Ultimately, for 1949, it's pretty damn progressive as a movie everything around it 
not just from Catherine Hepburn and the message. And I suppose we'll get on to a little bit more about the very obvious gay character who's never stated as being gay because we're still working in the Hayes Code and doing that means your movie can't be made. But Kip, who sings the Farewell Amanda song. And also, obviously, the fact that George Cukor himself was gay. But again, obviously, didn't publicly, or wasn't publicly known for a long time, of course, because he wouldn't have been able to do anything. I think it's a, I think it's a reason I appreciate and love a lot of George Cukor movies is that they are very intelligently progressive in the way that the Hayes Code would still allow him to get away with. But if you look just that one little layer under, you can tell what he's really trying to do. Mm-hmm. You can tell he's being a little bit... You know, you can just imagine the kind of flamboyant, outspoken movies he would have made had he been allowed to. Which is sad in a way. But you appreciate his skill as a director more being the fact that he was still able to impart these ideas in his movies while still legally able, able to get the major in the Hays Code. So such a restrictive time. It's a wonder any fairly outspoken ideas got into movies, which is why we love celebrating than when they do on this show. So yeah, that was my that was my spiel on this movie and its relationship towards gender. And I will add to that by saying that the last scene of this movie, or last sequence I should say, shows that deep down men and women aren't that different because seeing Spencer Tracy cry put just a big bow on the entire theme of the movie for me that it shows that guys aren't emotionless bastards they just have to present themselves as emotionless because they're dictated by facts and logics and law and they can't let emotion get in the way whereas Catherine Hepburn smartly uses emotion to help guide her way into the law because why shouldn't emotion play into how law is like that should be exactly. gathered into it, especially into a case like this, which is another reason why I think this movie would have been so much better if you did not see Doris shoot her husband. If you were only told the accounts of what happened, I think that message would have rang much truer. And that's a small flaw, but hey, I think the rest of the movie more than makes up for it. And I also... I could see this kind of movie getting remade today, but I really don't want it to because I feel like if this was remade today, they would probably make the Spencer Tracy character a lot more villainous. And you yeah. probably wouldn't touch on that emotion as well as they did in this one. Like, uh, you saw what happened with the Black Christmas remake. I feel like it would go down a similar route to that. You'd you'd get the the same message... You know, in a less get, subtle way, but yeah, in a, in a way less intelligent way, ultimately. And for now being a time that is far more culturally progressive than 1949, the fact that you would get a more intelligently progressive movie in 1949 than you would now is. Uh, Speaks to just how good this movie is, I think. But also speaks yeah. to the fact that people don't like subtlety. No, nah, if you were people... to get it now, it would probably be like Jared Butler or something in the Spencer Tracy role. A guy who looks like he punches kids on the way to the ice cream van. <laughs> 
I, I was going to do a Gerard Butler impression then, but then I realised I would have offended you. Um, oh, no, I hate Gerard Butler. Go ahead and fucking do an impression of him. I don't think I can now. I've built it up too much. <laughs> I just I just find it hilarious, the fact that Gerard Butler would just smack anyone out of the way because he's so desperate for a small ice lolly. <laughs> Not even a 99, just an ice lolly. Just an ice lolly, it's all he wants. Yeah, or, or uh, it'd be uh, like, it, if it wasn't Spencer Tracy, it'd be like John Lithgow or something like that. And you know what John Lithgow is like when he plays sort of villainy characters. Usually very good at them. Very good at them, but definitely not a humanizing element to them. I don't know no. if you've seen him in Dexter, but he's terrifying in that show. I trust you on that. I trust you on that. What was uh, it, it, you were you were talking about emotion? You wanted to bring up a point about emotion. That was it. The Spencer Tracy crying moment. I felt ah. ended it on a really emotional high note. You didn't have them divorcing over it, and then they're talking about, oh, I'm going to be the Republican. Who's going to be the Democrat? So you kind of have this thing like, yeah, they're it's showing that they're very different people, but they love each other still. Yeah, and they'll work through it, and uh, I'm sure he'll learn as much as she'll learn from him. Exactly, and that is what you get from this movie. Just because people are different doesn't mean they can't love each other. Doesn't mean they can't even simply be friends. Doesn't mean they can't be in decades-long marriages, except or anywhere with in between. Or if you want to be... I was trying to be nice about it, Nolan. But ultimately, it doesn't matter. A good person is a good person. I think. And yes, there are certain situations and certain thought processes and ideas that may be floating around some people's minds where you thought they might be a good person and then they turn into not a good person and then you go, bye. That does happen. But you have to, you know, get there in order to get there, I suppose. Definitely. But people with a good heart, I should say. People with a good heart are people with a good heart. Whatever. May, may they be more traditionalist. May they be more progressive. If they have a good heart, they have a good heart. And that is what this movie's love is based around. They're able to play off each other. They're able to banter with each other. But there's so much affection there. A lot of it, you just feel, is very genuine chemistry. And knowing what you know about Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy anyway, that just adds layers onto that. So that makes it more watchable and more enjoyable to watch. But I love I love the fact that they almost do get divorced over it. And then during those divorce proceedings, just realize what are we doing this for? We don't want to do this, do we? No, we don't want to do this. Why are we doing this? They're not thinking about it. And then they realise. And then it's all very emotional, and then it's and then it's nice. But then, oh dear, we get another twist, don't we? Because Kip comes back into... Kip, who's been lurking around the edges of this movie all the time, comes back into play, and then you get... Spencer Tracy nearly reenacting the first scene of the movie, which is probably why you actually get Judy Holiday shooting her husband and his lover, who is played by Gene Hagen, by the way, from Singing in the Rain. You know, what's her face from Singing in the Rain? I've got a high-pitched voice. You know, her from Singing in the Rain. What's <laughs> her name in Singing in the Rain? I think her name should just be Miss I've Got a High-Pitched Voice after that. I don't know what that impression was. You know, the 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 star who 
I can't stand him, that person from singing in the rain. I'm sure it'll the come to you Gene after the show. I normally know people by actors' names. Everybody knows this. Janine hates me for it. Yeah, you, you love Daniel Radcliffe and the Philosopher's Stone. <laughs> oh, don't get me into a talk. Don't get me into a discussion about Harry Potter, Nolan. This week has been monumentally Harry Potter focused, and I can't take much more of it. My mind is being. Are you excited for Tom Holland, No Way Home? Stop it now. You're being silly. <laughs> anyway, Gene Hagen's pretty good in this movie as well as a little supporting cast member. But yeah, then you get the uh, reenactment of the first scene, which is why I was going to say, which is why you probably get that first scene in the first place, even though you've said the movie possibly works better without it, is just so it can be mirrored in the final scene with Spencer Tracy making his hilarious licorice joke. Mm, licorice. Because it does seem, it does seem, does it not catch you for just a second, though? Do you not, for like a little bit, actually think he's being serious? Yeah, but that's just because of his ability as a character actor, I think. Yeah. It does make you think, though. It's very good. Did you want to bring up anything else about my Adam's final, Rib? My final thought on Adam's Rib. I think it's a very touching movie. It's a great study. If you want to get into law, you can use it to look at the good perspectives of law through it it's great got a great message it's very funny it's very dramatic it's very touching definitely one i would recommend for a date night if you want to switch that up and oh, this yeah. episode of it's a wonderful podcast has been brought to you by licorice all sorts not if your favorite all they'll be coming out at christmas if oh. your favorite texture is licking tar with sugar <laughs> off the back of a corpse licorice all sorts is the candy for you now I'm thinking of the tar monster from Scooby-Doo in particularly lewd situations. <laughs> Why my mind has gone there, I couldn't tell you. But you said the word tar and licking. And for some reason, I went to the tar monster getting down. You know, I always thought the tar monster was covered in melted chocolate. I mean, it does look like melted chocolate. Then what if the tar monster like? I'm getting too weird. What if the tar monster likes licking melted chocolate off other people <laughs> during his intimate situations? Is that what Doctor Strange meant when he said "Scooby Doo this crap"? It's exactly what he meant. Yes. <laughs> Anyway, what am I talking about? My mind has clearly gone... Gone insane. Insane and somewhere else. But Adam's Rib's a wonderful movie. I should say as well, you mentioned just how funny it was. We've barely talked about just how actually hilarious this movie is. I think the most hilarious part of this whole movie is, however, Judy Holliday's... Um, mon almost monologue of describing the shooting <laughs> when <laughs> Catherine Hepburn's first questioning her in, in her law office. It's hilarious. And I love it. And I love the fact she's always hungry. And I love the fact that the first instinct after she shoots her husband... <laughs> is I'm hungry for another hamburger. Well, I went to a diner in Edinburgh and tried a hamburger before my gig, and I can understand Judy Holiday in that sense. Diner burgers just hit on a different level. That's a fair point. That's a fair point. And you can also yeah. try their iron brew milkshakes if you're ever in uh, a diner in Scotland. Well, what is it with Scotland and just being weird? I do want to go to Scotland. I am trying to plan to go to Scotland. Yes, to see you as well. Calm down. Don't get excited. Or do get excited. Whatever. But this movie is just great. It is. It really is. 
It's exactly the kind of movie I love to celebrate. It's exactly the kind of movie that's just such a breeze to watch. You love the people in it. You are a fan of what it's saying. It feels in that way timeless. And it's just fun. It's fun. It's charming. It's so very full of love. And what more do you want from your courtroom movies than that? Fun, <laughs> charming, and full of love and romance. Is how you will not describe movie. a few good men. What, fun, charming, and full of love? No. That's not how you describe it, no. Miserable. Well, is it miserable? Serious. Shouty. Yeah. And nobody Tom likes Cruise. Tom Cruise. <laughs> That's how I describe a few good men. Anyway, Nolan, anything else you would like to say? I know I've already said that, but is there? No, I think that's me. I think we can just get right into the plugs. Well, there we go. This show, the main show, the show you are listening to right now. This has been a nonsensical episode, hasn't it? But we always like that because people's minds go weird sometimes. But that's okay. We're all human, unless you're a robot or a piece of licorice. That doesn't work. I was trying to make a joke. <laughs> oh, God, I've failed miserably with another joke again. I'm not as good as you, Nolan. I'm not <laughs> as good as you. But this is the main show that you are listening to right now. It's a wonderful podcast. This has been episode 186. We have been talking George Cukor's Adam's Rib from 1949. It is not the only show you can find on the It's a Wonderful Podcast feed. However, we have Machine Mondays every Monday with Janine, the machine of the movie Trivia Schmodown, talking about all things Schmodown. Funnily enough, that is the plan, and that is what happens every Monday. We also have Morgan Hasn't Seen with myself and Janine every Wednesday, where she forces me to watch movies I haven't seen. That's the whole point of that show. We are still on our four decades of horror series at the moment. We were into the 90s this week. We were talking Urban Legend, which was actually fun. Uh, good. Uh, I remember Jared Leto's in that movie. And so Jared is Michael Leto Rosenbaum. Is Jared Leto um, is in that movie. Don't worry, I made a big point of saying I hate Jared Leto. Well, Michael Rosenbaum's also in it, so that makes up for it. And so is Brad Dourif, the voice of Chucky, is in the very beginning. He is. he is. There's a lot of people in Urban Legend. I had fun with Urban Legend. It was it was good. Of all the it. Scream rip-offs, it's one of the fun ones. I see, I don't think it's much of a Scream rip-off. Anyway, if you want to hear me and Ginny talking about Urban Legend, that is this week's Morgan Hasn't Seen, but Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we have you covered here on the It's a Wonderful Podcast feed. You can find us on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, CastBox, and all the other places. We have the It's a Wonderful Podcast Patreon. If you would like to support us over there, just go to patreon.com slash it's a wonderful one. Find the tier that's right for you. Whole bunch of fun stuff we have there. And we also have the It's a Wonderful Podcast YouTube channel for you to subscribe to. Do your notification ding things. I call them ding things now, not a bell. It's not a bell, it's a ding thing. That's my made-up <laughs> language that I might start. I'm going to call it Morganese. And there's only going to be three people that speak it at, 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 any, at any one time. And your national dish will be Yorkshire pudding. No, it's not a country, it's just a new language. It's not an official language of anywhere. I just might, I'm, I'm feeling creatively bizarre, so I want to... A Yorkshire pudding my... with a pasty bam in it, then. Oh, that's very heavy. You don't need very that carby. Kind of very, very carby. I mean, I like carbs as much as the next carb-loving person, Nolan, but that's ridiculous. Anyway, you can also find the show on Twitter at It's a Wonderful One. Find me on Twitter at the Purple Don with a three instead of the E in the because three is the magic number. 
on Instagram at simply the purple dom. Nolan, all your wonderful stuff is where at Nolan Dean two seven at the Glasgow Kid one on Twitter as well, and uh, also I am now on TikTok at the Glasgow Kid two seven, and also on YouTube at the Glasgow Kid, where you can see some clips of my stand up show from last week. I have been doing some comedy gigs. I performed at the Keg in Paisley to a very very lovely crowd although it was quite bizarre that they came up to me and the first thing they said was when i heard you were a comedian i was like fuck this because i thought you were going to be a right winger only to find out that i was quite a progressive comedian and they were happy about that and also went to monkey barrel comedy in edinburgh to test out some other jokes to another very nice crowd and met some great comedians that's sort of where i'm focusing on stuff now i'm writing more jokes hopefully i'm going to be posting some more on there so Go subscribe to that, and if you want to hear some funny stuff about where James Corden came from, why people transition, or my very favourite, an autistic comedian taking down anti-vaxxers. There you go. There you go. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this lovely episode of It's a Wonderful Podcast. You are the best. We appreciate you deeply. Now is the time for me to say until next time, goodbye, and ask Nolan to see us out. Morgan, I would like to talk to you today about the future of the publishing industry. The publishing, okay, yes, books, we like books. If the last few years have taught us anything about the way we consume books, it's this. Twitter continues to prove why you should never meet your favourite authors. The industry is already breaking under the weight of new hardbacks of Harry Potter, in which J.K. Rowling now offers a membership for Dumbledore's army, now rebranded as a way to hunt down and kill transgender people with wands. (laughs) When this is revealed, hardcore Potterheads will come to her defense, claiming you don't have to sign up to it if you don't want to, but keep the brochure as a souvenir to complete their shrines to a franchise that cares less about them than the books did about including Dumbledore's queerness. (laughs) (laughs) Joe won't be alone in destroying the industry, though. The recent reveal of popular YA authors using NFTs to invite their readers to collaborate with the worlds they've created will be used as a jumping-on point for books to be released that actually transport readers into the world of the book in a bizarre Jumanji-esque world that they will only be allowed to review the book provided they escape. (laughs) Eventually, it won't just be experiences that are gatekept by popular authors. It will be actual names. People who share the same names as villainous characters or characters who die will launch blogs damning authors for this, and undoubtedly, the first name to join the cause will be Karen. Popular agents searching for diverse stories will now use admissions to hunt down querying authors with sniper rifles, editing their query to make sure their final dying wish is that their story be published by John Green, as this is the only way he can come up with new ideas. (laughs) Despite all of this, there will still be some loudmouth with a microphone claiming you can avoid all of it by self-publishing. But in a twist of fate, Jeff Bezos will now take advantage of it by using Amazon's self-publishing systems to trap authors into the internet as an NFT, which can only be accessed if you own an Amazon Prime Premier account. (laughs) In a way to crack down on books that challenge norms, the government will ensure all of them are read by Michael Gove. His drony whispers will make the great words of authors like Toni Morrison, Douglas Adams, Angie Thomas, and George Orwell sound like you've just received a cancer diagnosis from your postman. Oh, Not all of it will be bad, though. Every child in school will be assigned a Kindle, and hardback books will be sold on the black market as weapons, which will ultimately create a confusion on review sites. You'll no doubt see a negative review of an excellent book because the reviewer claims the story was shoved down his throat. Stephen King's It will be seen as a high-value weapon in this case. (laughs) And it is then, in our impending doomsday, that all of those books you buy to make yourself seem more interesting to your dinner guests will have collected so much dust it will be responsible for the great dust fog of 2025. Battering them out in public will be seen as a form of environmental damage, 
and you will be encouraged to dispose of your literary dust in more carbon-friendly ways by using them to choke yourself. <laughs> but Morgan, there's hope. Bookstores oh. will now use all the copies of books they've never sold to build houses for the homeless which will lead to a new form of class divide, as eager collectors of paperback and hardback stories will pick at the books, toppling the houses for the homeless, crushing them under the weight of the authors who only ever saw them as a dollar sign. Naturally, we will condemn this, but it will be bandwagoned again by J.K. Rowling, who, in a way to save face, will use all of the copies of Harry Potter to build houses for the trans community before toppling them herself while dressed as Dumbledore. <laughs> And finally, when this disgusting form of behaviour is challenged by book bloggers, the readers will spill their crocodile tears onto a late-night Twitter thread, reminding their followers that books are meant to be for everybody. And that's the future of the publishing industry. Well done. Well done. 